Hey folks, and welcome to what I think is the 16th SFD short. I've been trucking on the Iran stuff, and despite some freelancing gigs taking up my time this past week, I think that we're going to make the deadline. Worst case is that it'll be next Wednesday or Thursday instead of Monday, but I'm pounding it out to get us there. In the meantime, remember people, we've got a tweet, face, tumble, everything, because you and your output are the lifeblood of this show. I just put the words to music. On that note, too, I'm on Twitter all the time now, at John M. Coombs, and if you are, too, in all seriousness, reach out. Let's talk about something. Thanks on Patreon to our newest supporter, Evan Vlack. Our next Patreon news show is coming out on corruption across the government and how American democracy might well morph into the Mexican version, which, in as much as I love this country, is not where we want to go. In a few past shows, American Legions, Ends and Means, and Grand Theories, I've been advancing sets of ideas, sometimes related to some grander argument we'll get to in the Vietnam shows, and sometimes with what seemed like not much relation to anything at all at the time. This is going to be another one of those shows where I'm circling around a kind of unifying theory of the last century's worth of American history, trying to see exactly the forces that led us to where we are today. We've touched on this one before, but today I want to hammer it home. I'm John Coombs, we're talking about lying in politics, and this is safe for democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land and I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. It might surprise those of us born into this generation that there was a time when the politicians in charge of the United States government generally did their best to explain what they were doing, however unpopular, to the American people. 
Now, just to clarify, I don't mean that politicians in the U.S. were always truthful or above board. American politicians have a long, rich history of smoky parlors and darkly lit back rooms. What I mean is that once the White House had decided on a policy or a legislative initiative, or some senator or congressman had done the same, they sold the thing to the people on its merits. Woodrow Wilson, for example, for all his racist flaws, was a champion of the best kind of internationalism after the end of the First World War. Wilson spent the last months of his presidency and his life fighting for the League of Nations and ruining his health in the process, despite that the American people and the representatives in the Senate were returning to their traditional isolationism and were very much opposed to any new binding agreement over the water. FDR implemented the New Deal, the most sweeping set of social legislation in the history of the country, just a short time after the Red Scare, and at a moment when powerful forces and large portions of the population were as afraid of socialism as they are now. But he sold his slate of programs piece by piece, directly to the people, over the radio in his fireside chats. Truman, as the Cold War was beginning, did his best along with the executive bureaucracy to explain what was going on and the nature of American policy. They published the long telegram from George Kennan that shaped containment in foreign affairs, explaining our new objectives towards the USSR, not obscuring at all the shocking turn away from what had so recently been our ally. When the Chinese communists pushed Chiang Kai-shek onto Formosa, the GOP tagged the Democrats with losing China and ruined Truman's last years and much of the 50s with recriminations, accusations of collaboration with the enemy, and all of Joseph McCarthy's persecutions. But despite all of that, Truman directed the State Department to prepare and release to the public a thorough report explaining every aspect of U.S. involvement in the Middle Kingdom. All of those efforts to reach out and explain policy to the public weren't the result of Truman or Roosevelt or Wilson being inept politicians, even if the frankness of their pitches and revelations sometimes hurt the same policies and stances that they were trying to make and take. What they reflected was a faith on the part of this country's leaders that the average American was intelligent enough to be convinced. Now, there's a guy named Neil Postman who wrote a book that you might have had to read in school called Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is about how television and even radio have made us dumber as a people for the last 12 or 15 decades. I don't need to get into it today, and I'm not entirely convinced that Postman is right that we've gotten dumber exactly, and that if we have gotten dumber, which we might have, I'm not entirely sure it was television's fault. But what is compelling to me about Postman's argument is that the media you consume affects the way that you think. Journalists who spend all day on Twitter get really good at expressing themselves there because they've developed the ability to think in rapid dispatches. I have a hard time corralling myself to word limits when I'm freelancing because I spend all of my time reading long form and writing too long podcasts. What Postman says is that before the advent of radio, and especially before television, the U.S. had been an incredibly literate place. Even before independence, the literacy rate in especially the northern colonies was as high as 90% among men, possibly the highest in the entire world, with women finishing further down around 60%, which was still probably the best anywhere on the globe at the time. But Postman didn't mean just that Americans could read, but that they voraciously devoured newspapers, political tracts, speeches, and essays. Postman argues that it made them think, to a certain extent, in the form and in the language of facts and figures, speeches and rhetoric and reasoned argument. This is why, he writes, 
that people would turn out to listen to Lincoln and Douglas debate slavery for hours on end, as if it were a rock concert. Why people would crowd the galleries of the Senate to hear day-long speeches. Why until the dawn of modern advertising early in the last century, companies sold products by soberly listing their benefits. More like a slide in a PowerPoint than modern advertising, which usually and explicitly tells you nothing about the product. It was also why Alexis de Tocqueville, when he came to the United States to write Democracy in America in 1835, that, quote, an American cannot converse, but he can discuss, and his talk falls into a dissertation. He speaks to you as if he was addressing a meeting, and if he should chance to become warm in the discussion, he will say, gentlemen, to the person with whom he is conversing, unquote. As Postman comments, quote, this odd practice is less a reflection of an American's obstinacy than of his modeling his conversational style on the structure of the printed word. Since the printed word is impersonal and is addressed to an invisible audience, what Tocqueville is describing here is a kind of printed orality, which was observable in diverse forms of oral discourse, unquote. For all that we tend to remember American politics before FDR as this morass of political machines and isolated grand figures like Lincoln, there was also this tradition, dating back to the very founding of the Republic and before, of talking seriously to the people, because the people were used to talking seriously themselves. All of this began to change, radically, drastically, under Eisenhower and JFK. The fall of China to communism wrecked American politics. The Democrats for decades afterwards felt themselves digging out of the hole and always had to appear harder on communism than the GOP. Like I mentioned in my show about Tillerson at State, the backlash from China also resulted in a purge of the best and brightest officers from the Far East desk at the State Department. They'd been targeted as collaborators, since they'd predicted Mao and his ragged band's success years before it happened. Once Mao had taken over too, we were left in an absurd diplomatic situation, recognizing Chiang Kai-shek's government in Taiwan as the real China, and ignoring that Mao controlled 99.9% .9 of its actual territory. And all of that, every part of it, depended on the notion that communism was global, monolithic, controlled from Russia, and expansionist. If communism wasn't all of those things, then all those dedicated diplomatic officers who'd said that the Chinese communists were thoroughly nationalistic and weren't towing the Moscow line would then have been harassed and fired for no reason at all. If different communist countries had their own agendas, then supporting Chiang Kai-shek would only push the Chinese closer to the Soviets, when we might instead try to maneuver between them. And if world communism didn't really exist, then everything both parties were getting up to would be nuts, from the coups in Iran and Guatemala to the Bay of Pigs. The interesting thing that enters into this situation by the mid-1950s, when Eisenhower was in power, earlier if you were listening to George Kennan, is that the U.S. foreign policy and intelligence establishments were getting word that communism wasn't monolithic, and that there was, in fact, a Sino-Soviet split opening up. An opening that was obvious enough that even the Far East officers who had avoided the purge after the fall of China were willing to report it up the line to the Secretary of State. But rather than begin to act on that intelligence, Eisenhower's and America's China policy only hardened as the decade went on. Because, in the first version of something that would take place over and over again until the present day, an American party had sold the public on a set of ideas that were in no way true, and once they got into office were hamstrung by what they'd said. What I mean is that the fall of China became as big a deal as it was only because the Republican Party turned it into that kind of issue. 
The party in power, the Democrats, had been receiving intelligence, the intelligence I mentioned, that our man in Beijing, Chiang Kai-shek, was garbage, and that the Reds would win for a very long time. Forces on the American right, importantly, knew all of that too. But after having been out of power since FDR's first election in 1932, they were tired of waiting for a legitimate issue, and instead they invented one. Henry Luce, the owner of Time magazine, stifled any story coming out of China in the 1940s that was uncomplimentary of Chiang, instead editing in diatribes on the weaknesses of the communists and about how only the incompetence of the Truman administration could lead to the failure of this lion of China, Chiang Kai-shek. Meanwhile, Republican politicians in the Congress and the Senate trumpeted the same sorts of nonsense, along with the added, though maybe not as intentionally mendacious, falsehood that the Chinese communists were being controlled from the Kremlin. Truman, not wanting to badmouth what was, for all of his total inadequacy, still an ally, couldn't come out to deny what the GOP was saying, couldn't tell them that Chiang Kai-shek was a loser, but he was all we had, and so the Republicans lied to the public and convinced it. That our man was a hero, that the Chinese people loved us, that Russia was behind it all, and that only a failure of American resolve would let China go. And when Chiang lost, that it was all Truman's fault, rather than being the result of Mao's incredible guerrilla brilliance and Chiang's total worthlessness. So, by the mid-1950s, the GOP had been promoting the idea that we needed to get Chiang Kai-shek back onto the Chinese mainland from Taiwan, that Chinese and Soviet communism were one, and that any rapprochement with Mao was a weakness for all of a decade. And when they discovered evidence of a Sino-Soviet split, they kept on the same course. Because, and the released documents of the Eisenhower White House show that this was their reasoning, they didn't think that the American public was capable of understanding the split, of understanding the idea that most communist movements were nationalist and not Russian instigated or aligned, or of understanding that a new policy of detente with Mao would be the best move. So instead of trying to explain all or any of that, the GOP kept telling the old lies as before. When John Kennedy came into power, the Democrats had dug themselves the same kind of hole. To harden his own stance on communism, JFK had sold the idea that Eisenhower wasn't doing enough in Southeast Asia, where communist insurgencies were brewing in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Those countries were like dominoes, they said. First it was China, and soon it would be the rest if we didn't step up our commitments now. What's clear from the documents that eventually came out in the Pentagon Papers is that neither JFK nor any of his foreign policy people actually believed in the domino theory. After they came into office, they discovered that the people over in Asia with state were saying the same things about our man in Saigon, Ngo Dinh Diem, and Ho Chi Minh that they'd been saying two decades before about Chiang Kai-shek and Mao. That our guy was no good. That their guy was. That the revolution was national, not beholden to either Russia or China, and that our best play was to make friends with Ho. But because they'd been selling this lie about dominoes in Vietnam for so long, they assumed that the American people was incapable of receiving the complex arguments about international politics that they understood. So they kept selling the same lie, the one that eventually saw us commit hundreds of thousands of men in Indochina. In international politics, we never really recovered from this trend. Our stances on everything from Iran to Cuba and dozens of other little situations where we've pursued policies that run contrary to all evidence are the result of this initial failure of confidence in the American people to be able to understand the situation. 
the Bush administration's reasoning for invading Iraq, one in which they falsely linked up Saddam Hussein with Al-Qaeda, is just another and more perfect example of an administration unwilling to sell the actual policy that they want to implement to the American people, and instead coming up with some other one. And at some point, maybe in the 1980s, that policy of lies came home to roost right here in the United States. Before the long democratic decades, before FDR, the Republican Party promoted its pro-wealth policies for what they were. Low taxes and regulation had made some men wealthy, and industry profitable in the US. And that's what they championed. No talk about how making Rockefeller rich would somehow, by trickling down, make you, the little guy, rich. Just the promise that you, too, could be like Rockefeller if you worked hard enough. Technically true, even if they and their voters largely understood that not many people were actually going to end up like Rockefeller. Even under Nixon, when the Republicans pursued lower taxes, they did so pretty much because they were very high. 70% on income and 36.5% on capital gains in the top brackets at the time. And with the idea that everybody likes tax cuts. Similarly, even though Nixon's GOP was pro-corporate, Nixon gave us the Clean Water Act, an extension of the Clean Air Act, and the EPA. But into the 1980s, we saw the birth of what we now know as right-wing talk radio, and the beginning of the media movement that would give us Fox News and Breitbart and all the rest. These outlets were unconcerned from the outset with convincing the American people about domestic policy through argument. For the very first, their strategy was propaganda, in the way that the GOP's rhetoric on China in the 1940s and the Democrats' rhetoric on Vietnam in the late 1950s was propaganda. Ronald Reagan sold his tax cuts in the name of supply-side economics, with the idea that if we made the wealthy wealthier, they would create more businesses, more jobs, and more wealth for people down the pole. That strategy got labeled voodoo economics early on because the whole history of capitalism since the 1700s had already shown that money just did not trickle down. Reagan's people, moreover, knew that it wouldn't work, and indeed it did not. Their objective was to make the rich richer, but rather than selling that idea on its merits like the GOP had done before FDR, they told the middle and working classes that they too would benefit. All of those trends, the lying, the propaganda, the false policies, they've accelerated to their apogee in the politics of today. We see it in Donald Trump's tax plan, which he says wouldn't benefit himself and would cut taxes for the middle class, which if you just read the document, you'd know that it definitely does and does not. We see this in Republican attempts to reform healthcare. They lied so long and so loudly about Obamacare and their plans to replace it that once they'd gotten the chance, there was nothing they could offer that compared to the falsehoods they'd sold about better and cheaper care. We see it in what the Trump administration is doing right now, cutting the individual mandate out of the ACA and intentionally taking healthcare.gov offline in an attempt to force Obamacare to fail, all while telling the public that they're doing their best to keep it afloat. We see it most of all in the way that the forces of the right in the US have spent so long propagandizing their base that anything coming from universities, books, where the mainstream media is assumed to be false. A good democratic republic works because the public understands and engages with the issues of the day. The public doesn't need to be smart or even literate for it to work. All that needs to happen is that politicians pitch their ideas and policies in good faith. The Democratic Party works right now to obscure its ties to Wall Street and corporate America. But other than trying to elide or omit that one area, 
its politicians still try to convince the public of what they're doing. On the campaign, lover or hater, Hillary Clinton had dozens of public policy proposals and white papers available. If you wanted to know the nittiest, grittiest details of her plans for anything from education to healthcare to energy, they were right there for you to read. All of that exists because for all its faults and flaws, the Democratic Party still believes that the average American can be convinced if you could just sit her down and talk the issues out. The GOP, by contrast, has spent so much time teaching its base that up is down, that left is right, that the New York Times is propaganda, that wealthier rich people result in wealthier poor people, that abstinence-only education reduces pregnancies, that Mexican immigration is bad for the economy, that racism was dead in America until Barack Obama brought it up again, that every respected scientist in the world is engaged in a joint conspiracy on climate change. Such a parade of total fallacies and otherwise obvious falsehoods that they've created a people perfectly unsuited to participation in a democratic republic. A mass of men and women who cannot be convinced of anything. Instead, they've got to be propagandized, which is why every new batch of Republican congressmen have to be even greater demagogues than the last. Why every Republican, no matter how far right, is afraid of a primary challenge from even further. Why representatives like Bob Corker have thrown in the towel rather than face another contest to be more hateful and insane than the next guy. The only reason Donald Trump can lie all day, every day, without dreaming of losing his base, is that these forces have created a base that operates totally independent of any truth and has been inoculated against facts and figures. We are in a dangerous place, and I'm not sure that anything short of a second American Reconstruction can get us out of it. Even in the best scenario, the propaganda complex of the American right has so poisoned 40 or 50% of the populace that it would take us decades to dig our way out. But we don't have those decades. Donald Trump is president, threatening war with North Korea and Iran, spreading corruption in government like we haven't seen since Teapot Dome, gutting the State Department and destroying swathes of the executive bureaucracy. Last week, Scott Pruitt announced the death of the Clean Power Plan, without which we and the world are going to blow past the limits of the Paris Accords and in all likelihood make our way to a catastrophic three to four degrees of warming. History lives and it catches up with us. Sometime in the 50s, we realized that lying could bring us greater power. And since then, mendacity at the top has eaten away like a cancer on our politics. H.L. Mencken said that, quote, as democracy is perfected, the office of president represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron, unquote. The plain people weren't nearly as bad as Mencken thought back then when he wrote it. And it took Rush Limbaugh and Roger Ailes and Steve Bannon to make them so. The sins of the father have caught up with the sons, guys. And while everything is terrible, it only looks as though it's getting worse. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation 
of mutual trust and respect.